Hello again, and welcome to Crosswinds, a series of conversations with America's healthcare leaders produced by the Vizient Research Institute. I'm Tom Robertson, Executive Director of the Institute, and I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Mark Kerouac, President and CEO of Bay State Health. Mark, thanks for coming back. I was afraid that you wouldn't. I thought twice, Tom, but here I am again. (laughs) You know, we were talking in the last segment about what might happen in a future healthcare delivery system and what and what you've done differently uh, at Bay State. And I thought what might be interesting is uh, to start out with a conversation really that reflects some thinking that we're doing right now in the Research Institute, and it's almost an epiphany that came to me uh, about a month ago. I was trying to figure out why it was that 40 years of market failure to, uh, to get to anything resembling a sustainable healthcare spend, you know, what's been going wrong? And it occurred to me uh, for the first time, really, that it may be that we're struggling because we're treating healthcare as a private good when, in fact, we should be treating it as a common good. And if you know, if you think about the differences between a, a private good and a common good, a private good is something like a wristwatch or an automobile, where it doesn't bother us as a as a society if people who don't have the money to afford one uh, don't have one. A common good is more like clean water, where it would bother us if someone couldn't afford clean water. We would want them to have it. And it struck me that we are we aspire to have healthcare be a common good, uh, and we worry about health disparities, and yet we manage it and and hope the market will uh, will run it uh, the way that we would for a private good. And I think that we may be at an inflection point where we need to make that jump. What do you think about that? And how would you feel if? Uh, if the country just kind of fessed up to the fact that healthcare is a common good and we should run it more like a public utility? Well, I think it's a very insightful comment. You'll be pleased to hear that here in the People's Republic of Massachusetts, when somebody asks me if I think healthcare is a right, I tell them no. Uh, I think free speech is a right. I think freedom of religion is a right. Uh, If indeed you posit that something that costs money is a right, uh, does that mean everyone has a right to a liver transplant or everyone has a right to a $100,000 a year biotech drug? I think we need to have a conversation about what uh, a basic set of healthcare benefits ought to be. And I've actually used the image of a public utility, clean water, clean electricity. And basically what we're talking about then are highly regulated private companies where there is not only... Uh, expectations for basic levels of service, but also caps on prices and rates and subsidies for people who can't afford and all that sort of thing. I think if we move to that kind of a conversation, uh, we might actually get somewhere. So you look at a place like Great Britain, where they have the National Health Service as a kind of basic level of service, which is widely popular. There are still HMO types of plans that are kind of like flying first class on an airline. Everyone gets the same level of safety on the airline, uh, but some people get the nicer chairs and the fancier dinners. Uh, And so uh, uh, guaranteeing some kind of basic set of healthcare delivery 
you know, public utility model, uh, I think would have a lot of promise. And there have been a number of places that have implemented that kind of system very rapidly. I think Taiwan is a good example. So, you know, when we were together, you tended to fly in from a far off liberal uh, planet and I landed from a far off conservative planet. And I think the beauty was that we often found ourselves uh, meeting each other somewhere in between. It feels a little bit to me like we are conceptually moving in, the, in a very similar direction. You know, in the first session that we had together, you were describing some global budgeting and some um, kind of all-inclusive budgeting uh, that you've instituted at Bay State. I actually think that that's the model that we should go to. Instead of chasing fee-for-service uh, revenue, we should give you a few billion dollars and ask you to take care of the, the middle of Massachusetts. You described uh, some things that you have been doing differently. If the whole system moved in that direction and you didn't have to fight an uphill battle anymore, are there some things that you would do that you haven't yet been able to? Yeah, I don't think that we are fully there, Tom, quite frankly. We're in a uh, roughly million-person service area, and you'll be pleased to hear that we actually called in your old friend Ken Kaufman to figure this all out uh, for us. We right now are the tertiary care provider for those million folks. And so that's fee-for-service medicine. You know, they're in somebody else's global budget. And I'm not worried about that. We're, we want to give high-quality, cost-efficient episodes of care, you know, to replace their heart valve or do their cancer surgery. And we are taking full risk on 240,000 primary care lives. And en route to 300,000 uh, trying to grow that. But we don't want to grow beyond that because we don't think we have the infrastructure to manage it. You need a lot of practical infrastructure. You know, as I look back on our discussions, they were maybe less liberal conservative than they were idealistic realistic, I would argue. I mean, I would come you know, with these castles in the sky idea, and you were sort of like um, that great Chicago columnist, Mike Royko. I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing you were a Mike Royko fan. I read everything you wrote. Yeah. So Mike Royko had a great quote. He said, you know, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the optimists and those of us who really know what's going on. <laughs> and so you were kind of the Mike Royko kind of guy that I would come in and say, wouldn't it be great if we would do X, Y, and Z? And you would say, listen, you know, <laughs> this is this is the way the world really works. And I've actually, you know, had to embrace a lot of those ideas. If I could just expand on, you know, on that, for every new trustee and every new senior leader, I actually walk them through the S-curve. And uh, I don't know, do, do all your listeners know what the S-curve is? Those that have followed our research do. The shorthand of it to, to help you is you make all of your money on a very small uh, subset of your patients. You lose a lot of money on another group of sick people who don't have resources and you break even on most of what you do. Exactly. And if for us, we ran the S-curve analysis at Bay State like the third month I was here and people's jaws dropped as they always do. And I told them that my friend Tom had done this in 20 academic medical centers and it always looks the same. And so if 90% of your margin come from the top 15% of your patients, you certainly want to say yes and accept those transfers each and every one. Um, and it, they tend to be enriched with, you know, referral-based surgeries and, you know, very sick people in ICUs. 
uh, I call them the people who live in the mountains. And then there are the people who live in the prairies, you know, the break even 80% or so. And those are the folks who have rather bread and butter diagnoses. And um, you try to do medical management and gradually lower your expenses so you can make a slight margin on all of them. And then, of course, you've got the people who I say live in the canyons. Uh, those are the same folks that are living in the mountains, except they're, they're either uninsured or paid for by Medicaid. And for them, you want to take risk on them and keep them out of your hospital because you're going to lose money on every case. You need to keep them healthy and at home. So we use the S-curve. We basically uh, use the service line structures that you and I researched when we were studying uh, institutes. And um, really, I think that I have adopted a lot of the realistic attitudes because I know now that I have to run a gigantic financial organization in, in addition to delivering healthcare. I mean, we're a $2.5 billion organization that requires $6 million a day of cash flow to keep the engine running. And that's a staggering amount. Uh, you can't be a sort of pie-in-the-sky guy and run an organization like that. You need to basically see things as they are rather than how you wish they would be. And so I think I have moved a bit more toward the realist side of the ledger. Um, and uh, you'd barely recognize me these days. It's absolutely fascinating to me to hear you say that because uh, I see exactly the mirror image of myself uh, over the course of the 10 years since we've worked together. I, I am now on stumps around the country, waving my arms over my head, uh, calling for rate regulation and kind of calling out the failure of the marketplace and, and asking uh, the industry to embrace the idea of an all-payer rate-regulated public utility model. And I, I think it's fascinating that even without seeing each other on a day-to-day -day basis, we continue to find ourselves to that point in the center where we feel like we're making some sense. And that kind of leads me directly into the question that I really wanted to ask you. You might remember, I remember it. I remember a day when I, I once said to you, you know, Mark, you and I should go off and run a medical center together. Um, you be the doc, I'll be the non-doc, and, and we'll just go take one of these places and run it together. And your response was rather riveting. You said, you know, we'd probably end up not liking each other if we did. What do you think makes it so hard about keeping positive relationships in these complex healthcare systems? And what's your secret to having done it so well for now 10 years? Well, first of all, I'd like to amend that statement. I think if you and I ran a medical center, we would fight every single day and we would end up loving and treasuring each other. That's nice of you to say. I think you're right. And I think that, first of all, you need to acknowledge you're working in an irrational system in which your instincts about doing the best by patients will often cause you to lose money and your instincts of you know, containing care and your interest in trying to make a margin may actually cause you to do things uh, that might not be in the best interest of patients, do things to patients rather than for them. Um, and so I think that needs to be acknowledged. In terms of having the positive relationships, uh, I, I've often seen it as my purpose in life to help the members of my tribe, physicians, interact with and deal with the complexities of a large organization and the financial constraints. I've uh, worked a long time to develop 
management skills in physicians. We've actually put in place a physician leadership academy of the sort that I described in a little booklet uh, that you may remember from the early 2000s where we studied three or four uh, uh, physician leadership sort of mini MBA kinds of courses. And we've grown a bench of about 100 or so physician leaders who kind of understand how things get done, how to do budgets, how to work in teams, uh, what strategy looks like, how to do a business plan. And those are great allies. And they really helped us a lot when we were in the pandemic because we had a bench of really committed leaders who cared about the institution. I think to work in a large, complex academic medical center, you really need to be willing to try to understand where other people are coming from and put yourselves in their shoes. And it's something that I've really tried to do in my life. I'll, I'll tell you the uh, leadership book that I would recommend to you because I know you would uh, enjoy it uh, is one called Heroic Leadership by a guy named Chris Lowney, L-O-W-N-E-Y. It is a history of the Jesuit order and a biography of St. Ignatius of Loyola. Now, you'd say, well, what the heck is that all about? He looks at the Jesuit order as a company that has survived for 450 years in spite of the efforts of many people to snuff it out. And it's the culture of that company that allowed it to survive when many other religious orders just went away. Uh, many of these other religious orders, you know, they sat in monasteries and read sacred texts. But uh, the Jesuits kind of mixed it up in the real world in a way that really ensured that they would thrive and grow. And Ignatius had four key things that he did uh, that were the cornerstones of his culture. The first was a sense of self-awareness. They do a daily self-examination. And it's something I try to do. You know, was I a really good leader today? Was I not? What could I have done better? They highly prize ingenious ingenuity and creativity. They really focus on heroic ambitions, you know, what they would call a big, hairy, audacious goal. I think the, the one I remember from the book was him sending St. Francis Xavier on a boat to go convert the entire country of China by himself to Christianity. <laughs> and he did this. It only took 25 years, but he ended up doing it. And the fourth one, though, is the winner. Ignatius's line was, you need to see God's love in every living thing. And... When somebody basically is diametrically opposed to my worldview, rather than write them off as a moron or dismiss them as, you know, uh, just clueless, I try to sort of understand why is it that this smart person might think something so different from me? And uh, even if you end up disagreeing with them, they end up feeling respected. So trying to understand and trying to figure out what's different about somebody who's thinks differently from you, I think is one of the keys to making things work in a large, complex organization. Well, it's something that it's a trait that you have that uh, you're engaging intellectually, irrespective of philosophy. I think for, for folks that get to know you and, and the, the people that deal with you on a day-to-day -day basis, that has to be currency in your account, is, is the ability to to have a point of view, but to be uh, open and engaging intellectually uh, with folks who are on uh, on the other side of the fence. And I give you a lot of credit for that. Let's close with a two-part question. The, the first part is, is uh, a little bit of fun. If you weren't uh, an ID doc, what specialty would you choose 
and why? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I, I never was in love with any particular organ or organ system. So I guess I would probably not pick, you know, cardiology, nephrology, whatever. I might pick one of these multi-system specialties like rheumatology or immunology. Or, you know, one of the things I would love to see come back was something that existed when I was a kid. It may be making a comeback. When I was a little kid, everybody, all the doctors were general practitioners or family doctors. And there were two or three people, uh, two or three doctors in town who were the internists. And these were the brainiacs of medicine who would see any kind of complex case. And I've actually talked to some friends of mine down in Texas in which now our general internists uh, who are primary care doctors, uh, down there they may supervise five or six advanced practitioners and see only the complex cases. I think that would be an incredibly cool thing to do uh, as a medical specialty. And maybe it's coming back in a way if we alter our primary care model. I think it should. You know, I'm a big proponent of, of chronic disease medical homes uh, not linked to traditional primary care practices, but wrapping resources around these complicated, uh, you know, multi-system failure patients. And and you need the brainiac docs to be able to, to focus their attention on it. And, in, you know, as an aside, I'll ask you the second half of the question in, in just a second. But as an aside, I always thought it was kind of funny. Whenever you and I traveled together, you were so modest that you would just sit quietly and uh, let people uh, talk uh, who probably didn't deserve to uh, in whatever room we were in. And it was me who had to point out to them uh, that you were a Harvard Med graduate. You were very quiet and unassuming, but the brainiac side uh, is, is something that I think you could go back to uh, in a heartbeat if you needed to. The second part of my question is actually a personal uh, question. You and I were talking a, a month or so ago. And you have a letter uh, hanging on your office wall that I know means a lot to you. Would you share a little bit about that with folks? Yeah, this is a quite a story. It's almost a little bit spooky. I, I first have to say a word or two about my dad. Uh, my dad went through medical school, first person in his family to go to college thanks to the GI Bill and graduated from Yale Medical School back in the early 1950s and then hung out a shingle in our house. He converted an old two-car garage into an office with a couple exam rooms and he was the family doctor for our neighborhood uh, and did that while I was a little kid. During those days in the 50s and early 60s, if you were a medical doctor on staff at a hospital, you might pull a day of, out of the month in the emergency room, kind of on rotation. My dad got this idea that, well, you know, maybe we ought to, you know, just specialize in emergency medicine. So he convinced three of his friends to take on the emergency room on a contract basis from the hospital. And it, of course, spared all the ophthalmologists from having to, <laughs> and dermatologists from having to be in the ER. Um, and they created what was then the second ever in America uh, emergency medicine group. It was actually featured in Look Magazine in 1965. And my dad was the president of this group, which grew and grew. And then he finally, you know, as the hospitals merged, he became the head of a number of emergency rooms for a merged multi-hospital system. So I didn't know any of this stuff aside from the fact that, yeah, that's where he worked. When people were going through the archives, and this happened two days before 
and addressed to all the managers of Bay State Health, a group of about 500 people in a hotel ballroom that we had pulled together, kind of a state of the union address that I had been working on. And somebody two days before gave me this letter that he had written in 1983, the 20th anniversary of their corporation. And I literally ripped up my speech and completely rewrote it. And here's the letter. And remember, my dad had absolutely no leadership or management training. Uh, And I'll read a couple of excerpts. He basically said, and so this is sort of them celebrating 20 years of existence of this corporation. He said, 20 years ago, our corporation was formed to bring into being a new concept, a delivery of emergency care at the hospital by full-time dedicated private physicians who would practice only emergency medicine. He said he remembers those early days and the goals we set. They appeared simple, but they were really quite lofty. The only two goals were, number one, we would deliver quality medical care, and number two, we would always do what was best for the patient at the time, regardless of the circumstances, and take care of any red tape later. So this is sort of simple rules for complex organizations and, you know, clearly uniting uh, the company around a vision. He then goes on to, you know, add a couple of goals around convenience and that sort of thing. But then it gets kind of spooky. At the second page, he says, the president of any corporation has many duties, but his primary responsibility is to guide and shape the values and goals of the corporation. I ask you to join me with uh, to carry out our mission. My greatest satisfaction would be to have the president of this corporation 10 or 20 years from now write a message in which he said we've adhered to the guiding values and are starting yet another bold new adventure. So here's the thing. His corporation went away. Uh, They became employees of Bay State Health. And so this was the successor to his corporation. And 30 years later, that future president to whom he was writing that note was his own son, which is and and basically helped me to understand that, you know, you can delegate hundreds and hundreds of things as the CEO of a corporation But the thing you can never delegate is what's important, what's the value system of the organization. And uh, it was just chilling for me to read this letter. And um, it formed the basis of the address to to the leaders at that time. I'm thrilled that you got a chance to share that. It was electrifying for me when I heard the story on the telephone uh, just a few weeks ago. It's it's also your dad would be proud. He he'd be very happy to know that somebody's running the organization who does put the patient first. Unfortunately for me, it's time for us uh, to say goodbye today. But before we do, or perhaps by way of saying goodbye today, let let me share a story of a goodbye uh, years ago that I'll never forget. You and I were out in uh, Rhode Island for Tim Babineau. And we were facilitating a strategic retreat. And it it turned out that that was going to be your last trip uh, with what was then the University Health System Consortium. And you and I were out there, as we often were, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, out at, uh, at one of the academic medical centers trying to convince them that we had an idea or two. And as things wrap up, we're now in Providence, Rhode Island, which was your home airport in commuting back and forth between Chicago and, and your family's home in Massachusetts. And so I had no idea that you were not planning on flying back. It should have occurred to me, but it didn't. So when we were out in the parking lot after Tim's uh, presentation, uh, you handed me your laptop 
and you said, well, I guess this is it. I'm not going to be flying back. I'm going to just stay out here. Would you mind shepherding my laptop back and taking it back to the office to save me the trip? And so I, I take the laptop and I'm, and I'm realizing I was ill-prepared for this being it um, after 10 years of, of hanging around with you. And so I took the laptop and you being you, you just uh, casually extended your hand uh, for a handshake. And for people that know me, they know that I'm really not a huggy feely kind of a guy. Um, but I just vividly remember that a handshake wasn't going to do it. And so I remember uh, wrapping my arms around you and giving you a hug. And there was just this feeling, there was an element of Camelot about it. Uh, it just felt like this was a time in my career that I was going to look back on and, and cherish. And as it turns out, I was right. So I want to thank you, Mark, for spending a couple of podcast sessions with us. And I hope that folks enjoyed getting to know you because you're an extraordinary guy. Well, thank you, Tom. I look back on those days myself as uh, really the happiest and in many ways most impactful of my career. You should know that I have a picture of you on my credenza. Uh, you may recall the time you and me and David Burnett uh, took a picture throwing darts at a target, uh, which uh, was supposedly the way we decided on our strategic project work for the year. Uh, but I've got that picture up on my credenza. So uh, you're, you're on my mind frequently. And those were very, very happy days. Thank you very much. I look back on them and treasure them. So thanks, Mark. Thanks for being with us. And thank you for listening in. We hope you find these conversations to be thought-provoking. And we look forward to welcoming you back for a future Crosswinds. I'm Tom Robertson. Until then. <laughs>